0: invite you to turn in your Bible to the book of Amos, if you're visiting with us, today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, and so we always try to give a sermon uh, to this uh, every year. January rolls around as part of our first five series, Again, atypical sermon series for us. We usually will be preaching through whole books of the Bible, Uh, but there are some things that we want to make sure that we hit on, and uh, this is definitely one of them. So this morning we're going to be looking at Amos chapter 5. We're going to pick up in verse 6. And we'll read through verse fifteen. So Amos writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in chapter five, verse six Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood, and cast down righteousness to the earth, he who made the Pleiades and Orion... And turns deep darkness into the morning. And darkens the day into night. Who calls for the waters of the sea. And pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is His name. Who makes destruction flash forth against the strong. So that destruction comes upon the fortress. They strong, hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor, and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions, and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe, and turn aside the needy in the gate, Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, as you have said. Hate evil, and love good, and establish Justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Would you pray with me? <coughs> well, Lord, we thank You for Your Word. And... Uh... I just want to immediately confess our need of your help. We can lay up so many arguments one way or the other. Sometimes that is necessary. But what each one of our hearts really needs is the clear light of your Word. The clear and demonstrable working of the Holy Spirit So we pray that you would cause us all this morning to seek the Lord, to find the Lord, to be found by you, and to know true life ourselves, and then to advocate for it in the world. We ask this for the glory of Christ, in Jesus' name, amen. Recently, one of Jenny's friends uh, became pregnant, Uh, and being a little bit older uh, than one uh, might normally be uh, for becoming pregnant, uh, she was, I think, joyfully surprised, Uh, and everything for a while seemed to be going well. Everything seemed to be going as planned. Until, unfortunately, she developed a hematoma. This is something similar to what Jenny actually had with our fourth child. And with that hematoma, tragedy came. Uh, What happened to our child at seven weeks, in between our two youngest, happened with this child also at 18 weeks The baby was born before it was able to live outside of the womb. Uh, The the agony of such loss uh, is almost indescribable. Uh, It is truly gut-wrenching. What I'd ask is why, as a society, do we find such natural loss like that a tragedy? I think everyone in the room would hear that and think that is awful, saddening. We consider that a tragedy for every human involved. But then the legal homicide of the weakest human involved in such a situation, something else, something other than a tragedy. Because since 1973, that's basically how we've justified what we call abortion. That's how we've softened the blow of what abortion is and why it is and the literal carnage That it's left in its wake. Abortion, just so you have the statistics, accounts for 2,500 deaths every day. So that it's the leading cause of death in the United States of America. Since the turn of just this century, it's led to the death of over 20 million children in the womb That puts it at over 60 million children since Roe v. Wade in 1973, which is over twice the population of Texas and over one-fifth the population of our country. Gone because of abortion. So how is the miscarriage of a human this awful sorrow, but the miscarriage of justice against said human, largely an accepted norm in our culture and in the church. What's numbed us to what we know, we know, I just told you, Is the daily slaughter of the weakest human beings in our world. We couch it in acceptable terms. We redefine justice by what we think most benefits us. Very simply, we pervert righteousness. We call it a human right, we call it justice for women. We call it the excess, just the excess of sexual exploration or just a simple medical procedure. We might call it population control or just environmental prudence when what we're talking about is, in fact, the killing of the most innocent and needy members of our human society. And what if our complacency, As Christians, what if our complacency as a church, what if our complacency as a people of God has a lot to do with that? What if our sense of right and wrong, our sense of what's worth protecting, is more worldly than it is godly? Because that's what we see in Amos. If you will, we see a cloud, dark cloud, promising rain only to leave the land dry. gives no rain. We see an auto body shop advertising, we will repair your vehicle only to return your car to you in disrepair. Personal experience recently. What I mean is, we see a people promoted as the people of God called to be a holy nation, reflective of His heart, foregoing their promoted purpose. They don't uphold God's notion of justice in this world. Will we? Will you and I? More specifically this morning, will we act on what the Bible and conscience and science and common sense argue is most just, most just regarding children in the womb? Will we as a church walk, not just talk, but walk as children of light and establish this thing called justice in the gate? Let's pick up in our verse 6. Let's start with this. Injustice, injustice thrives where souls are dead. We want to be careful there. A year ago, at this time, same subject, we looked at Job, the man, Job, as a model of righteousness. We saw there that he acted humanly toward all humanity. Now, Amos is something different. He's kind of the opposite of what we did a year ago. Amos is a corrective for a people of God who have lost their way. A people of God who have lost themselves in the world. And so we need to be very careful. Religion does not always equate to righteousness. Having the book of true worship doesn't mean that a people will truly worship. Having faithful prophets, like in Amos, does not guarantee that the people themselves will be faithful. The exposition may be good, but the application evil. So, when I say injustice thrives where souls are dead, that's not to say it can't live where ideally it never should. Each of us are capable of treating another human being improperly, unjustly, not according to the dictates of righteousness. And we have to add there that even the most despicable souls are not as despicable as they might be. You don't have to be a Christian to side with what's most right. The ardent atheist still has a conscience. They do. The hardest heart still has one. However dogged they might be against it, they're still human beings. And by that token, they can't completely suffocate the image of God that they bear no matter how hard they might try. Having said that, I think it most definitely helps to be a Christian. At least it should. Moral beliefs and ethical expectations will change with the resurrection of a soul from the dead. Where God's common grace enables a person to act against expectation right for good in spite of slavery to sin. Saving grace enables a person to increasingly eradicate that old expectation and increasingly act in line with new resurrection life. It enables you to live to God with its application towards all mankind. In other words, where salvation is not, a soul exists in spiritual death. And where that's multiplied, without hindrance, what arises is a culture of death. And in that culture, in that kind of society, injustice doesn't just live. It thrives. And the real jolt of Amos is this describes a people of God. When God urges them, in verse 6, seek the Lord and what? Live. What's his underlying sermon? It's that they're not living. They're not seeking the Lord because they're spiritually dead. God's people are flatlined in Amos. And how then, you see in verse 7, Does he address and identify this spiritually dead people? O you who turn justice to wormwood, bitter, bitter fruit, and cast down righteousness to the earth. The spiritually dead people of God are defined by God not as those who know what's right and establish what's right but as those who instead miscarry justice. Rather than model the rule of heaven on earth, they trample it upon the earth. What God says no longer matters. His standards, His standards are despised by His people, righteousness, justice, is a thing that's relative to me. And what's right to me. And what's good for me. And not God. And in that godless kind of world, there is one dominant principle. you probably heard of it before. Might makes right. Might makes right. If you start with me in verse 9, God begins to describe this unjust people as the strong. You see it there? The strong. They're those, verse 10, who hate accountability for their actions. At the brutal expense of other human beings, they just want free reign. They want freedom to act for their own self-interest. And don't you dare have an alighted conscience about it because they will come after you. They will nix you for having a conscience about right and wrong and telling them. It's a risky venture to tell them the truth. They don't want the truth. They want what they want. And as the truth is an obstacle to that, they will pay very, very well to have it silenced so that they can go about their injustice comfortably. Their strength is in their ability to create unjust balances to their advantage. Their strength is in their ability to create a world where the needy are a feeder system for their wants and desires and lusts. The needy supply their wants the poor supply their wealth the weak supply their kingdoms so you see in verses 11 and 12 god says they trample on the poor you think about a stampede they trample on the poor and they exact probably exorbitant taxes of grain from him they afflict The righteous, verse 12, they take a bribe and they turn aside the needy in the gate. They push away the beggar's hands. Like the rich man in the Gospels, they're happy to use Lazarus, but not help him. They'll steal away his life in order to prop up their lifestyles. Why do they prey upon the needy like this? The text tells you. Fancy houses, a lavish villa, pleasant vineyards, the very best wine for the very best parties. It's sickening what we'll value over a human being. What we'll do with a human life if we can do it and get away with it because the system allows for it and society approves of it and the sanctuary of God's people is a den of unrighteousness same as everybody else. When God's people really just are God's people in name and not in actuality. Where the Almighty is forgotten, the weak will be forgotten. And righteousness will be forgotten. Where the Almighty is forgotten, might makes right. As we relate that to the weakest and neediest members of our human society... It doesn't matter then that we now know that the science supports what scriptures always said. That we have an actual, unique, and complete human being at the moment of conception, equal in dignity and value to the mother carrying. It doesn't matter that the seven inches down the birth canal hasn't suddenly transformed some non-entity in the womb into a human person with a right to not be killed. Seven inches. Ultrasounds have made this pretty obvious, what we're dealing with, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that upon discovering the ultrasound, a certain doctor presiding over the largest abortion clinic in the Western Hemisphere admitted that he had aided not in so many abortions or medical procedures, but in so many human deaths. It doesn't matter that we know how a pregnancy plays out from conception. You just saw the video. That at six weeks, the child has a beating heart, six weeks, the child has a beating heart, blood flow, limbs, brain waves, mouth, nose, ears, muscles, skeleton, and organ control. And You need to note that the earliest abortions take place after six weeks. We know that just 12 weeks out from conception, that these children have their their fingerprints, their unique fingerprints, identifying them. And they've begun to suck their thumbs. And they've begun to do all the gymnastics that we see our girls doing in the backyard on the daily. We know that at this point, they're already frowning and smiling. This little person has already begun to show their God-given personality. And at this point, you know, nothing new, 12 weeks, nothing new develops. Nothing. Nothing new develops or begins to function. The child from that point moving forward only grows into their body and into their being. And yet, if you're not in what's called a sanctuary state, that child, that child can be aborted by law at any point for virtually, and I mean virtually any reason, up to birth, up to birth, 40 weeks. And in some states now, if they survive it, they can be finished off after delivery. What are we doing? All that's needed for that is the agreement of the mom and the doctor. How can that be? Because where what's most right is skewed and subjected to who holds the most might, it doesn't matter. Scripture doesn't matter. Science doesn't matter. Logic doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that smashing a turtle egg will get you fined. But killing a human one is okay. It doesn't matter that if a pregnant woman is subject to a car accident in which she loses her child, that death of the child is called Fetal homicide, homicide. But if the same child is aborted, we call it something else. Contrary to the slogan, no unwanted child, the National Council for Adoption reports there are literally, literally thousands of families wanting a child and waiting to adopt, yet a thousand babies right now are aborted for every 15 that are adopted. Because it doesn't matter. Friends, our culture is all buzz about oppressive regimes. And yet we seem to have no problem reducing the most dependent persons among us to the status of non-persons. Or at least lesser persons than me. And as we've seen that applied at Auschwitz, or in Soviet gulags, or in chattel slavery, or in human trafficking, We are rightly disturbed and disgusted and appalled. And we will fight to the death for justice. And yet, nothing, nothing disproportionately kills minorities and the poor and women. Nothing disproportionately kills them more than abortion. You can check out the data. Well, isn't this about women's rights? Yes. All women, not just a subset of women. It's not just mothers. Women's rights. Women like abortion survivor, Gianna Jessen, who asked the courts once, what are my rights? Am I not a woman? She was a woman in the womb as well. And I bet the other, listen now, 163 million, 163 million baby girls who have been aborted in our world just for being girls and not boys would ask the very same if they could. in talking about abortion, we're talking about more than infanticide, we're talking about gendercide. No matter, we don't want children to come into this awful world and suffer. As if our suffering, while it is very lamentable, hasn't led to so many of the beauties that we go on to later champion. We make Golden Globe movies out of things like this. As if our suffering isn't what makes us so, I don't know, human. As if it were somehow irremediable. Or if it were purposeless or meaningless. As if we don't have a whole book of Job to tell us otherwise. Or the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ who accomplished our salvation through suffering. No matter, it's all for a good cause. Like biomedical research. Never mind that labs can get adequate stem cells from consenting adults and placentas and the blood of umbilical cords. No matter that, never mind that. It is embryonic specimens that we want, it's embryonic specimens that we prefer by which we thus, by the way, create a very lucrative, money-driven market for them. Just basic math. Simple economics. No matter, we will not support illicit or dangerous pregnancies when 93% of all abortions are performed on healthy mothers with healthy babies that have been conceived consensually more than 99% of the time. No matter this very basic principle of justice, we're getting down to it now, okay? The nitty-gritty, the hard things this very basic principle of justice, that when two legitimate rights conflict, like not being pregnant on the one hand and not being murdered on the other hand, limiting the rights that does the least harm is the most just limitation. That's an actual principle of justice. So what's most just? Not just just. We have to be able to deserve most just. And it's not easy. Legislating, most just, legislating the duration of a pregnancy that ends in the life and adoption of that human being. Or legislating that that human being lose their life, full stop, so that the mother and those around her can live the kind of life they want. It may not be for castles, or French villas, In a first class wine cellar, but maybe to preserve your reputation, to sustain independence, can't have a kid. Maybe it's to forego responsibility. It's not easy being a parent. Maybe you're all in on revolutionizing what our world thinks about sex and romance and all this kind of thing. Maybe it's just to keep the significant other with whom you have, by God's help, created a child. Maybe it's just because you side with convention. And abortion is conventional. Makes sense. But you boil it all down. And that right there, that is the excruciating but necessary question. But does it finally matter? It won't in a culture of death. It won't where evolutionary theory reigns supreme. It won't where God's people are okay with that are at ease about it. It won't finally matter where against the truth, might makes right so that justice is cast down to the earth. But the thing is this. Here's the thing. Only the strong survive isn't true. Old Amos... Disagrees strenuously with early Darwin. Might doesn't make right. But the Almighty does. And He will. The flow of our text indicates that righteousness is cast down because that people no longer regarded Him who reigns above. Evil booms where God the Creator and Judge is banned from our collective conscience. So, verse 8, if you look there, God first reminds them. (laughs) Those constellations that you pull into your driveway at night and it's all dark and you look up and you see that glory, I made that. night, the day. That's me. I created it. I rule it. I command it. I rule the seas. I give the rain. I prosper the land. I'm merciful to the just and the unjust alike in this way. The Lord is the creator of everything. Ergo, He is this people's Creator. And establishing that right there, that every single one of you were created by God, is pivotal for the sanctity of human life. You lose that, it's a free for all. The original for this is in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Let us make man in our image. Psalm 139 that Janet read for us in our call to worship adds on to that. Made us, fit us together in our mother's wombs. But it's Job 31, verse 15 that I believe Jenny read for us. That's the one that really nails it, right? He's speaking there, Job, He's speaking there about His servants. His servants. And this is what He says. Again, Job 31.15. Did not He who made Me in the womb make Him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? You've got to get how radical that is. Today and in Job's day. Job was a popular man. Job was a wealthy man. Job was a reputable man. Job was a man of power. And yet, against the convention of history, he treats his servants equitably because they are equal with Him in dignity and essence and worth. And Job locates that justice-defining equality where? In the creative work of God within the womb. So, whatever we become in the world, It's what God has made us in the womb that fixes and establishes our universal and inviolable sanctity. It's what God's made us in the womb when we are at our weakest and neediest that sets a binding glory and responsibility upon us to love and do what's right by one another. God hates unjust weights. He says that in Proverbs. He did not create us for bias on the basis of one's earthly stature, He created us to discern a person's God-given humanity and always act accordingly. We see so much else, don't we? Than the thing we need to see to honor God and love our fellow neighbor. And I have to say it because it's in our text. There will be a literal hell to pay if hell's way continues to reign in a people to the end. God is not an amoral creator. He cares deeply, divinely, about the righteousness of His image bearers precisely because He created us to bear and advance His glory. So, where that's been cast down by sin and left to die by impenitence, God is saying, I will right all wrongs that have been done. God will condemn unrighteousness. His justice is going to be fully satisfied. You can bet on it. You see this in verse 12. He warns them. I know. Let's feel this. (laughs) Individually and collectively. Hear what God is saying here. As if He's saying it to you. I know how many are your transgressions, and how great are your sins. Let me remind us, Amos is emphasizing the horizontal nature of sin, sin as against humanity, and especially those that by nature and circumstance demand differential protection because of it. Let me also point out one way the world has always apparently transgressed this. It's at the very beginning of the book of Amos. Chapter 1, verse 13. Fair warning, it's graphic. God says about the Ammonites, they have ripped open pregnant women. It's God talking. What's the implication there? God has seen it. He's seen a society that rips open pregnant women to murder them and their children in the womb. God has seen it. And God here in this passage is condemning it. And He calls them on it. He's going to call them to account for it. And maybe we say, well, that's that's the Ammonites, and that's ancient war, and that's what happens. But what's Amos talking about? What's Amos about? It's about God's people. God's people doing no better than the pagan nations around them. And if we, as a society, do on the daily for convenience... What the Ammonites did occasionally to stamp a brutal war, is our society not all the more evil and endangered than theirs? It can be a terrifying truth that God knows, and that if Christ is not your way, and does not become your way, God will repay it to you. The strong may build their houses and plant their vineyards, but insofar as the foundation is injustice, as God defines it, their earthly heavens are going to be very, very short-lived, and their hell very, very long. Unless they turn and seek the Lord, And live, He will, verse 6 it says, break out like fire against them and devour them with none to quench it then. If you live and die by what's wrong in God's eyes, His justice will not be miscarried in the end. His justice is going to flash forth It's going to be clear as day and it will be inarguable. You will be silenced on that day. Might does not make right, but the Almighty does and will. Which brings us here. Dear ones, of all the people in the world, we are called To establish justice in the gate. If not God's people, who? If you'll go with me to verse 13, our text closes that amid such evil, he who is prudent will keep silent. And as if to say, don't just talk the talk, okay? This day, be silent. He goes into actions. Don't just talk the talk. I want you to walk the walk as My people. He goes on, verses 14 and 15. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Do you know who's in the gate at this point? Just read down through our passage. The strong and the unjust, they're in the gate, verse 10. The herald of truth, they're in the gate. The strong and the unjust, they hate him. But he's there and he's in the gate. And the third one, the weak and the needy. Verse 12. They're in the gate. You put all that together and what you get is this call to be courageous for the afflicted, the the, the needy, the weak, whatever the cost. Courage. That's the prerequisite for establishing justice in the gate. And I don't want to give the impression now that the issue is simple. It's not very, very complex. And... uh, I want to make myself available. Pastor George as well. If you have any questions further, you want to talk about things more, I'd be happy to do that. It is complex. As we've seen, justice uh, isn't as simple as Christian, non-Christian. The decision to abort a child isn't as simple as don't care, it's my life and I'll do it my way. It's not as simple as hero, villain, villain, villainized, baby good, mom bad, Abortionist, worst. Establishing justice in the gate is just as much about grace as it is truth. Having an abortion, I want you to hear, or having supported an abortion, or advocating still for so many more uh, is not unforgivable. Out of all we've said, we can't forget how our passage started in verse 6. The Lord has some really hard words for His people, but how did He start? It's over for you. Nope, that's not how He started. What did He say? Seek the Lord and live. That's God inviting Unjust peoples to repent of their sins, to come to Him and receive life from the dead, same as He's invited every single one of you who are a Christian here this morning. The fact is, Jesus was sent into the world to go outside the gate. And there, to let injustice have its awful, awful way with Him. And not just to establish justice in our world, but by His all-sufficient sacrifice for sin to justify the ungodly who turn from sin and believe in Him. We believe that here. So, if you need a culture of life that's distinct from a culture of death one that's committed and filling up with truth and grace we pray that you'll find it here but if you came here lost this morning that right there begins by turning to Jesus right now for life True life, new life, everlasting life. As for us, church, establishing justice in the gate sort of branches out from that. It branches out from the life that He's given to us by grace. It's a call to hate and to spurn evil, while at the same time loving and seeking what's good. And so this morning, uh, it, it may be a call to see how you can help the Stocktons in their efforts to adopt. Again, a thousand kids are aborted for every 15 adopted. It can include praying that a young girl who's in our youth meetings on Wednesday night praying that she'll be soon adopted, allowed to be adopted by her foster family who loves Jesus. You're young this morning, you're a student. Maybe it's a call to advocacy in one of several areas. (laughs) Maybe it's biomedical research. Maybe it's go get your law degree, get involved in legislation according to all the dictates of scripture, science, conscience, logic, so on and so forth. You write laws. For some of you, maybe it's just ministry. <laughs> maybe you go on, you're going to get your, your master's of divinity, and you get into a church. And you be about the right things. And you preach the word of God with all your heart. And you help a people become a people of God indeed. Maybe it lands today as a call to volunteer your time and your heart as a counselor at one of our nearby pregnancy centers. If that's something that piques your interest, talk to Janet at the very least. She can help you out there. Parents, uh, I think it has to include a recommitment on our part, the part of the church as well, to the wise instruction of our children. We have to be able to distill a biblical worldview that begins to color the way they view the world. There's a whole lot of ugly out there, and they're around it all the time and it rubs off, we need to be something different, give them something different. We need to model belief, (laughs) model belief in the sanctity of every human life. We need to be a people who are consistently learning how to treat every person according to the sermon that the womb preaches. And to do it in the good hope of the gospel. Is any person so bad that they cannot be saved? In the gospel lies the only power that can raise and renovate a soul. In the gospel lies the only power that can change not just a church, but the world around it. Certainly today, if the Lord would kindly leave us a generation of world-shaping children and Christians and churches, it's a call to weigh the way of the mighty against the mind of the Almighty in the Word of God. It's to feel the weight of Scripture and all the other things so that the unjust loss of a human life and particularly those who cannot at all protect themselves can't help but matter to you and me until we are moved to establish justice in the gate. What's one thing you might do this year to that end? Let's pray. Oh Lord, help us. We hear these things. At the same time we want to rejoice in Christ. At the same time we want to rejoice in the gospel. We want to be truly spiritually grieved over the condition of the world around us. We want to lift up to you a true lamentation for children. I've heard it said that this generation, last couple of generations, is a survival generation because of what's happening to them in the womb. Oh Lord, break our hearts. Solidify this church on the truth. Mobilize us. Help us to make incremental but mighty differences Put an end to injustice. And let the light of justice and truth and grace have full reign, even in this world right now. In Jesus' name we pray.